Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays were off yesterday because it was the NBA draft and they wanted to do me that favor. They knew I'd be locked in on Grady Dick, the number 13 overall pick to the Toronto Raptors. They knew I'd be writing my little cap updates after they decided, hey, we'll take the day off. Not that there wasn't some Blue Jays stuff going on. Uh, the minor leagues were busy. The double A team continues to at least make me think about, hey, what a, what could a double A to the majors jump look like for some of these starters? Um, but not much popping around the Blue Jays yesterday. Give us a day to kind of reset. Talk to Chris Black and, and Mike Petriello about some of the bigger statistical trends and things like that. Gave me a chance to play around with creating a Blue Jays only immaculate grid. The Jays are back in action today, though. Chris Bassett against James Caprillion. Jose Brios against Hulk Hogan Harris. It's a big wrestling weekend here in Toronto. So, of course, the A's had to start Hogan. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi against Luis Medina on Sunday. Looking like maybe the Dome might be closed for a couple of these. It's not supposed to be a particularly nice weekend. Uh, but fun weekend around the city. Big wrestling weekend. Big Blue Jays weekend. Pride weekend. Um, hope you all have a nice weekend and a fun and safe one. Um, we are going to get back to Blue Jays action today. We're going to talk to Shai Davidi a little later. Uh, we've got Dale Scott, the former MLB umpire and the first openly gay umpire in baseball uh, coming on with us a little later as well. Vivek Jacobs is going to come in studio as we uh, continue to set up cricket day down at the ballpark tomorrow, get into some, uh, why that's special, why, the universe boss is someone we should be excited to see throw out the first pitch. Maybe try to figure out which Blue Jay would be the best cricket player. Uh, but joining us right now in a, a bit of a weird spot because I've branded him as a as a meltdown expert before. There's not a lot to melt down about right now. The Jays have won a whopping two in a row. It's Jonah Bierenbaum of The Score. Jonah, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, pal. How are you? I am good. Uh, I guess off the top, what did you think of the new front bottom single, uh, Punching Bag? I love it. I personally, I prefer uh, the previous single, but you know they're they're uh, they're hit makers. So you know, whenever they put something out, I'm excited. I usually uh, listen to it ad nauseum until I get sick of it. Um, and I'm looking forward to their show in Toronto, which is uh, right around mid-September, I believe. Yes, it is. And I remember that because I have a wedding to go to. So I will not be at that show with you, which will be the first front bottom show we haven't gone to together in a while. And that actually going back to the terrific Marco Estrada start against the Kansas City Royals, where we booked it from the game to the front bottoms concert, which is a, a nice little way to pivot us back to baseball here. Um, Jonah a baseball question for you from the player side. So I know you played collegiately, you played, you know, men's league and things like that. I saw a GoPro camera video of Paul Skeens throwing 101 miles an hour the other day. And I have to wonder just having seen it like that, how did you ever manage to hit anything like 80 plus or even like 75 plus? Well, it's, it's very charitable of you to assume that I did hit 80 plus i'm not saying uh, they were the... like well struck batted <laughs> balls or anything yeah. like that but yeah i'm sure you accidentally ran into someone who threw that hard i'm i'm thankful that there was no rap soto no track man no i played in the pre-stat cast era so okay. nobody was tracking my exit velocity um because i you know i think if it's possible it was probably in the single digits um look i, I served a very important role for the carlton ravens every team needs comic relief uh, everyone needs someone who's going to comb through fan graphs and gives them give them updates. Uh, you know, for their favorite teams and players. 
that they weren't going to arrive at organically. So, you know, uh, I was on the roster, but, um, you know, not necessarily for for the value add on the field. Um, but no, face, facing big velocity, honestly, uh, truthfully, my issue wasn't really with big velocity. It was with spinning stuff. Like mm. if guys were throwing 80 but straight, I could usually go in there and put up, you know, a, a decent at bat. But once guys started mixing in nasty breaking stuff, I was overmatched. That makes sense. That is uh, entirely fair, I think. So you homered then about as often as <laughs> Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has lately? Is that is we that have the fair exact same isolated power? Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, okay, so I mean, it, it, it's been a positive couple of days for the Blue Jays getting those two wins and taking the series off the Marlins is a nice way to, especially with an off day here and the league's worst team coming in this weekend. It, it is a little bit of a window here to maybe turn things more positive. But until Vladimir Guerrero Jr. starts hitting for power again, that's going to remain a conversation. Um, what have you made of those struggles on, in Vlad's part to? hit for extra bases. Obviously the singles hitting and the bat to ball stuff is still there for the most part, but that's not, you know, it's not like he's Luis arise in terms of contact hitting. And there really isn't a lot there to the pop right now. What do you make of, of what Vlad's gone through for, I mean, the better part of two months now. Yeah, honestly, since late April, since April 28th, his OPS is 673, which Ugh. is just unthinkable. But more and more, it's just so difficult to reconcile. And in a in a sense, I think he's a great microcosm of this team because the talent is there, and yet the results are so consistently underwhelming. I mean, look at look at the StatCast numbers, right? He has the second most hard hit balls in the majors at 133, behind only Ronald Acuna Jr. He scorches the ball. You look at his baseball savant page. It is littered with red. The contact quality is off the charts, and yet he just can't seem to elevate the ball consistently when he hits it hard or when he does hit it hard, it's at someone. Uh, It's incredibly bewildering, frankly, and what's particularly surprising, too, is that he's not doing damage in situations where he has the advantage, where he has count leverage. I was looking into these numbers over the last couple of days, because it seems like whenever Vlad's in a favorable spot, he invariably doesn't come through. And there is some merit to that. League-wide OPS after batters are ahead in the count is 981. Vlad's is about 100 points lower than that. Now compare that to 2021. After he was ahead in the count, his OPS was 1250. Even last year, which was obviously a down year relative to 2021, but still a very good season, his OPS after he was ahead in the count, 1055. Again, this year, it's almost 200 points lower than that. League-wide OPS after a 2-0 count. It's 1061. It's over 1,000. Vlad's 713. That is an enormous gulf, and it's just so perplexing because, you know, he's, he's ostensibly one of the best hitters in the league. By contact quality, he is one of the best hitters in the league. And then he gets into these spots where he seemingly has the advantage. He has the count leverage, and he just doesn't deliver. I don't know if that's because he gets up in the count and he's pressing and he's swinging at pitches that he shouldn't. I mean, his chase rate is certainly higher than it ought to be. It's the highest of his career, and it's a far cry from where it was in 2021. And it does seem generally like the swing decisions aren't as elite as we expected them to be. Obviously, coming up to the minor leagues, he was hailed for his eye and his pitch and his strike zone awareness and his ability uh, to discern balls from strikes. And not only balls from strikes, but hittable strikes from non-hittable strikes. It doesn't seem like we've seen a ton of that from Vlad over the last couple of seasons, but it's been particularly bad this year. And ultimately, the results are are just this bizarre, underwhelming uh, season that he's put up where there's a, a, a shocking absence of power 
And what's really troubling is that we're now five years into Vlad's career. This is his fifth season in the big leagues. If his current numbers hold, he will have precisely one season with an OBP above 350 and one season with a slugging percentage above 500. Vlad's going to be a free agent in two years. And we're at the point now where, you know, he's not young from a major league experience standpoint. He's not young from an at-bats at the big leagues uh, standpoint. And, you know, it, it's uncomfortable, but we're, we're, we're at the point now where we've got to reckon with the fact that Vlad's tenure with the Blue Jays may end up going down as ultimately underwhelming, um, you know, obviously highlighted by one tremendous season in 2021, unless he can figure out, you know, this mystifying inability uh, to hit for power and to ultimately be the elite hitter that we were promised he would be. So a lot to... to- pull on there Jonah and the the struggles went ahead in the count is probably the one to me that I look at and I'm most comfortable diagnosing as a hey you're trying to do a little bit too much you get a little over eager in those situations I think we can all see it sometimes like you can see him kind of jumping out of his shoes a little bit and you know Joe Siddle and Caleb Joseph can can break down the mechanics of those swings a little better but I I do think you can draw a line between hey I've got a hitter's count I got to do something uh and, and those struggles there but it is you're right it is very perplexing and it's also it's such a waste to have the skill set to get yourself into those counts a lot of the time and not be able to make use of it. So 28% of the pitches that Vlad has faced this year have been when he's ahead in the count, which is a little above the league average. So he's doing a good job still getting in those advantageous situations and just, like you said, not doing as much with it. Um, it it's it's perplexing. Do you, do you How much do you buy the trying to do too much in those spots theories, because like it's it certainly like intellectually that makes sense. I, I can understand the A to B there, but as you laid out, you know, four out of the last five years are to tell one story. So how much, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to navigate is how much can we look at things that should be better from here and we can understand intellectually versus there is a sample of, if not this thing, something else kind of, capping what Vlad's production has been other than that 2021 season. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so tough because uh, uh, again, like all a hitter can do is, you know, try to hit the ball hard and he hits the ball hard. He hits the ball hard better than anyone else. Um, And yet the, the extra base power, um, eludes him. And I, I definitely think that there's uh, merit to the argument that when he gets ahead in the count, he tries to do too much. And that's probably a function of the fact that this team is struggling to score runs, or, or more correctly, they're struggling to get big hits uh, in big spots with runners in scoring position. You look at their context, neutral numbers, they're a top six offense. You look at their numbers with runners in scoring position, they're a bottom six offense. Uh, and, and, and I appreciate that Vlad, as the guy, as the MVP runner-up, in 2021, who would have won it if not for Shohei Otani being superhuman, I appreciate him, you know, wanting to be the guy who delivers the big hit, wanting to be the guy uh, who snaps the Blue Jays out of this funk. Um, and yet, uh, ultimately, it seems like he's only doing himself a disservice, doing the team a disservice, because rather than laying off pitches that he can't drive uh, when he gets count leverage, he's swinging at borderline strikes. He's he's swinging at pitcher's pitches, making soft contact, not getting the job done. Um, And, you know, it's, it's uh, ultimately uh, just, it's just the frustration continues. So, you know, 
I, you know, I, the, the honest answer is I don't know what to make of it. I don't know whether he's he's just a guy who's always going to press because he's trying to live up uh, to the incredibly lofty expectations, or I don't know if he's just a guy who, for whatever reason, uh, you know, just can't. There, there's something mechanical or there's something approach-wise that will not allow him to actualize the potential that we saw throughout the minor leagues and we have certainly seen at times in the big leagues uh you know most notably throughout the entire 2021 season uh but then again I, you know it, it, it's it's funny because like the 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 building body of data also makes you know it does funny things to your mind because now you look back at 2021 um and you're like hmm he hit 48 home runs that year salvador perez also hit 48 <laughs> home runs that year uh so you know it, it it's tough because you know you obviously want to believe that that is a good indicator of who vlad is but more and more it seems like an outlier even though once again you know he continues to punish the ball like like few players in baseball do yeah and i think you know big picture were we not living it day to day and i talked to mike petriello about this a little bit yesterday is like a good rule of thumb would be to bet on the guy hitting the ball extremely hard at like a nobody else can match him level like that's a, a safe bet to make and a safe way to approach it, but that doesn't make it feel any better day to day and moment to moment. Um, so I guess let's let's recalibrate a little bit. And, and so Vlad has this first half of 2021 where his WRC plus weighted runs created plus, which to the one person who replies to every single Vlad conversation with, well, it was Dunedin and Buffalo. Yes, that's true. But these stats try to adjust for that. Uh, Vlad wasn't the only player who played there. We can, we can try to account for that. Um, that first half of the season, his weighted runs created plus was up around 187. So uh, almost double an average player offensively. The second half that year was 142. The other years of his career, he's topped out at 132. He's at 115 right now. What would you say is a reasonable baseline expectation for the second half of the season where, you know, like obviously ideally it would be that 187 half season. He hits 25 bombs and everything's beautiful, but realistically given the half season samples and believing that some of it is going to come around for him. What do you think is a, is like a reasonable baseline expectation for the rest of the way here? Maybe one thirty WRC plus. Okay. Which, so which, uh, about which, who he was last year then. Exactly. Um, you know, when we were watching the 2022 season unfold, I think we all thought, okay, this is Vlad's new floor. Um, Frustratingly, that has not been the case. Uh, so it's kind of a, a a moving floor because now you would believe, okay, there's no way he could possibly be any more punchless than what he's shown this year with his 423 career worst slugging percentage. His slugging percentage this year is lower than it was as a rookie, mind you. Uh, so, you know, I, I got to believe that some of these missiles that he's hitting, and again, second in the majors in hard hit <laughs> balls, and it's not like there's an overrepresentation of ground balls in that sample. His ground ball rate among hard hit balls is consistent with his overall ground ball. Yeah, rate. and he's so right he's near the ball. Yeah, he's right near the top of the. Sorry to in, interrupt you, but when we look at the expected out, expected stats versus actual, he's right near the top in like poor fortune for for lack of a better term of like yeah, we can measure how hard they were hit and if they were hit in the air and where they were hit and things like that. We can adjust for the fact that ground balls aren't expected to produce very good results. And it's still saying, oh, yeah, no one has a bigger gap in the quality of their contact and the quality of the results. 
Indeed. So his expected weighted on base average this year is 388. His realized weighted on base average is 335. So there's a big gulf there, uh, which which does align with, with I think, what we've seen. It does feel like uh, an inordinate amount of the time when he hits the ball hard, it's at someone uh, or it's into the ground um, and over a big enough sample, you know, those balls that are coming off his bat at 104 or 106 or 110, they're going to find holes and plays are not made on them. So I, I'm choosing to believe that positive regression is coming. You know, I, I don't think we're going to see a 187 WRC plus second half, but you have to believe that given how hard he hits the ball, this is the absolute floor for him, what we've seen through the first half of 2023. Um, and, you know, if he continues to make contact like he's made contact, not only uh, through the first half of this season, but for the majority of his career, the results are going to start uh yielding more extra bases. Okay. So one thing the blue Jays have tried to do a little bit to get Vlad going or, or just to mix things up because they've had trouble sequencing hits and cluster luck and all that stuff. They've juggled the batting order a little bit lately. Now um, I, I know at one point you and I ha- had talked off air and, and Bo Bichette as a potential leadoff guy, just given how well he was hitting uh, and the bat to ball skill. There was something you had kicked around. He's dealing with, you know, one of the worst chase months of his career right now in June, swinging at a lot of breaking balls outside of the zone. So maybe that's something to pocket for now. Um, but where, how are you feeling about John Schneider? Just kind of tweaking the lineup here and there and, and where Bo and Vlad best fit within that. Yeah, I, I like it. And let me say that, you know, uh, tweaking for the sake of tweaking isn't necessarily analytically sound, and yet sometimes it can feel necessary. Uh, you know, obviously changing the lineup isn't going to magically make the Blue Jays' numbers with runners in scoring position normalize, uh, but it is also understandable that John Schneider and the rest of the team uh, would be motivated to a certain degree uh, to play around with things on account of frustration and impatience and underperforming expectations. So I have no problems with tweaking conceptually. I don't know that I would necessarily be hitting Whit Merrifield in the top half of the lineup as good as he's been this year, which is, you know, it's incredible uh, among regulars, you know, he leads the team in on base percentage. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think for me, it, it, it's kind of immaterial how you uh, structure Bo, Vlad, and George Springer at the top of the lineup. Uh, you know, we, we obviously did have that discussion off air where I floated the possibility of moving Bo into the leadoff spot. I, I think there is an argument to be made that he deserves more at-bats or more at-bat opportunities than anyone else on the team because I think you can make the argument he is the best hitter on the team. For context, his career OPS Plus is 130. Vlad's is 133. Hmm. And I think Bo is well-suited to lead off. I mean, he gets on base at a healthy clip. Yes, his OBP is fueled by a high batting average, but but he's demonstrated an ability to sustain a high batting average. He can do damage. He can get himself into scoring position for two, three, four. He has speed. I like his profile at the top of the lineup. And that's not an indictment of George Springer. I, you know, since his awful April, George Springer has mostly been himself. His OBP has been 360. Uh, he's been slugging. I don't have a problem with George. I just think that, you know, if if you're looking to, to make a change without really making a change and, you know, you're hoping to catch lightning in a bottle or whatever idiom you want to use, um, you know, I, I like the idea of, of hitting your best hitter who happens to be well-suited to, to hitting leadoff first in Bo Bichette. But ultimately, I don't think it really matters uh, where you put Vlad, Bo, Springer, one, two, three. Look, I'm not even, I know this is going to sound insane. I'm not even averse to hitting Vlad leadoff. Uh, you know, he would avoid hitting into double plays, which obviously <laughs> he does with with serious regularity. But look, he's a great hitter. 
He gets on base at a healthy clip. He does damage. He can get himself into scoring position. Um, he runs the bases with uh, tenacity, shall we say. Um, but fundamentally, just put your best hitters one, two, three, and that's uh, you know essentially what John Schneider has done for the majority of the season. Now, in his desperation, he's he's worked Whit Merrifield into that top group. But um, yeah, I mean, with, with those three guys, as long as they're hitting one, two, three, I don't think it terribly matters uh, which order they're hitting in. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, you've got the Brandon Belt of it all to break up the righties a little bit if you like the OBP profile up there. Um, yeah, you've got some options there. I guess the biggest conversation is, is George Springer, at what point is he comfortable moving out of the leadoff spot? Um, so... We can, we maybe, we'll maybe do a little bit of the pitching stuff, but I want to, I want to throw something by you. So I, I introduced you to the Immaculate Grid yesterday, which I, I know you, you had some fun with. Yeah, I'm, I'm forever indebted to you. Yeah, the only, the only issue is it with it is that it only gives you one a day and you can't just keep playing infinitely and they just randomly come up with, like, it should just be set up to randomize and just give you infinite Immaculate Grids. So for anyone Man. who doesn't know, and Mike Petriello and I talked about it yesterday a little bit. It's this game where it gives you a team or a stat or a certain category, and there's a little grid. So there's three, you know, it might be Philadelphia Phillies, Cincinnati Reds, World Series winner. And it might be Milwaukee Brewers, San Francisco Giants, and 20 home run hitter or 25 home run hitter or something. And you have to fill in the boxes that match each row and column. Well, Jonah, I made a little Blue Jays specific one for you here. Wow. So we're going to test which... Which row would you like to start with? There is World Series, the World Series Championship Blue Jays, 92-93, the Roy Halladay teammates, or the 2015-2016 teams. Those are your three rows. Uh, all right, let's go. Let's kick it to childhood. Let's go with uh, Roy Halladay teammates. Okay, Roy Halladay teammates, and the column here is 20-plus stolen bases. Has to be in the season as a Blue Jay. So a Roy Halladay teammate, 20-plus stolen bases. Jose Cruz Jr. Yes, one of many. You had a lot of of options there. Uh, This is the easiest uh, row that you picked here, by the way. Um, Well, thank you for that. Uh, 25-plus home runs. uh, Carlos Delgado. Very good. Now, this is is one. The the band here for Roy Halladay's years is 1998 to 2009, so... You can go a lot of different ways with this, but it it sure. might be hard to remember off the top of your head. But acquired in season. Ooh. Uh, who did we trade for in season? Any uh, of those years. Bobby Kielty. All right. Let me double check because there, <laughs> there are a bajillion. I, of I went with a deep cut there. I went with a deep cut. Uh, yeah. I think. Yep. July 16th, 2003. Beautiful. Yeah. For Shannon Stewart, right? Yes. And a player yeah. to be named later that became Dave Gassner. Cool. The gas man. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, so well done. Now it gets harder from here. You want the World Series champion ones or you want 2015, 2016? 2015, 2016. All right. 20 plus stolen bases. There's only uh, one guy. Yeah. He's the only one. So that's the hardest block there. Whew. Uh, 25 plus home runs. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion. Of course. Uh, there's also Josh Donaldson and Jose Batista in there. And uh, acquired in season. Oh, take your pick. Uh, Troy Tulowitzki. Yes. There are, there, it's uns- like, there are so many guys they acquired in season over those two years. I'm going to read them to you. LaTroy Hawkins, Troy Tulowitzki, 
David Price, Mark Lowe, Ben Revere, Cliff Pennington, and then because one Cliff Pennington wasn't enough, they also got Darwin Barney, uh, Jason Grilly, <laughs> Joaquin Benoit, BJ Upton, Mike Bolsinger, Scott Feldman, Francisco Liriano, Reese McGuire, Harold Ramirez, and Deonor Navarro. That's how many wow. guys they acquired in season over those two years. That's incredible. That also, is- shout out to Joaquin Benoit, who down the stretch in 2016 put up an 038 ERA over 25 appearances. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's lethal. Uh, 16 guys they acquired in season over those two years. All right. Now, World Series champion years, 92-93, uh, the only guys left. And as a reminder, they had to get the 20 stolen bases with the Blue Jays. Oof, man. Oh, uh, Roberto Alomar. Yes. Uh, Devon White, Paul Molitor, Ricky Henderson, the other options there. Ricky, even though he didn't spend a ton of time there, still managed to do it. Uh, This is a a deceptively hard one, given Mm. that they won two World Series. 25-plus home runs. Joe Carter. And Dave Winfield, the only two. Not a lot of high home run guys on those teams. And now uh, I kind of gave Everyone just hit 372 (laughs) that year. Uh, And then I kind of gave it away, but acquired in season. Uh, Ricky Henderson. Yes, as well as Tony Fernandez, David Cohn, and Mark Eichhorn. Uh, So pretty good grid, right? Yeah, that was was fun. Uh, You made me look smart, so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, well, now this is uh, thanks, the baseline, buddy. right? Right, is now I've got to figure out how do I make it slightly tougher, but not too much tougher mm-hmm. that it, it, like no one can get it, right? It's uh, like I feel like if you make a grid where someone gets seven out of nine, that's the sweet spot of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my my lifetime of of doing nothing outside of consuming Blue Jays baseball has yeah. really paid off dividends in this moment. Yeah. So uh, thank you, buddy. By the, we'll just keep making these harder as, every time you come on. And by the end of the season, it'll be like game specific. Like who walked in the sixth inning of this game? Uh, it will be an insane. Jose Batista. Yeah, probably Jose Batista. Uh, Jonah Bierenbaum of the score. Uh, thanks for taking the time out, buddy. Have a great weekend. You too, pal. Thanks for having me. Jonah Bierenbaum of the score at Bierenball on Twitter. We're going to continue to set up uh, this series. Jays play the Oakland A's, the worst team in baseball, with the exception of that one week where they were sticking it to the man, uh, which was fun. But, you know, you you look back, and even with that winning streak that they had, they've won fewer than a quarter of their games. They're 19 and 58. This is a part of the Jays' schedule. It doesn't get softer than these next five series leading into the All-Star break. Uh, San Francisco's here next. They're pretty good. Uh, they're nine games over 500 and in a, a very difficult division, no less. But it's Oakland and then San Francisco. Boston is then here for Canada Day weekend. They're hanging around 500, but I think every most people would agree they're, they're the weakest of the AL East teams. And then you've got the White Sox in Detroit, which are, you know, the softest spots on the schedule that you can imagine outside of Oakland. So uh, it is time for the Jays to get it going here a little bit. And it'd be nice for them to, uh, I mean, Hey, if you want to get super optimistic, three games against Oakland, the Jays have only won five games in a row once this year. So uh, not a bad time to do that again. Tomorrow at the ballpark is cricket day. What does that mean? What are the parallels between cricket and baseball? How excited should we be to see the universe boss, Chris Gale, in person? Vivek Jacob will join us next. I will go through all of that and more as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. With me now of Raptors.com, of Locked On Raptors, of the Play in the V, Twitter and Substack. It's Vivek Jacob. And you know him from the Raptor Show with William Liu as well. V, what's up, man? How are you? Nothing much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk some cricket. Yeah, absolutely. First, though, we got to get your I, I know you're doing stuff for Raptors.com right now. You were at OVO Athletic Center last night. Um, the Raptors select Grady Dick, 13th overall. He's wearing the Dorothy. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> slippers as a suit jacket. What were your impressions of the newest Raptor last night from a, I mean, go whatever way you want with it. Outfit, playing style, the Zoom call you guys had with him. What do you make of Grady Dick? He's very confident. Uh, and he can shoot. I think that's the biggest thing when you were looking at the Raptors' needs, if they were uh, going to get a guard. I think that's something that would have excited me, someone who could dri- dribble penetrate. But if not, address the shooting. And so now they have some sh- uh, shooting, and we'll see how he fits into the rotation. Uh, defense is going to dictate uh, how much he can get get on the floor. But I think, uh, you know, I think every aspect of his offensive game is something that encourages you for the Raptors. Yeah. Pretty plug and play. And one of those kind of multiplier skill sets where it should make things a little easier for other guys. It's a great fit next to Scotty in terms of potential actions they could run together or synergies they have together. So, or TikToks. Yeah, that I care much <laughs> less about. Um, so let's keep it to just Twitter and Substack instead of TikTok. So most people, I think, know you for your Raptor stuff, Raptors.com, Locked on Raptors, Raptor Show with William Liu. But you have a side account, Play in the V, and you have a Substack newsletter, tennis, basketball, soccer, whatever, and then also cricket. Um, I guess, I mean, I do two sports as a job as well, but you keeping up with four or five, uh, how does that all work? Where does cricket fit into the larger mix of like, I, like I know what the, the cadence of covering tennis and soccer and basketball is. How does cricket fit in the mix for you? I think the one thing that works to my advantage is the fact that like the times work out well where, you know, tennis is usually on in the morning, afternoon, and then cricket kind of works that way as well. And so uh, I think the only problems are, you know, if they were like playing in India or in Australia, sometimes they go, you know, it could start at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And then that's obviously tough. But um, I think for the most part, I've been able to keep up. Uh, like right now, you know, they're playing in the UK. So the games start at like 6 a.m. And it's not too rough, yeah. uh, but I can handle that. Um, but yeah, honestly, it just comes down to just loving the sports, right? Like I'm a fan first. And then all the other stuff comes with it. Yeah, 4 a.m. starts. You got to cut your evening short to be there. It's, uh, it's tough. Um, so how, how have you found writing? But I know it's mostly like a passion project for you. But obviously, if you're writing for Raptors.com, that audience, you assume, has a built-in knowledge of basketball and yeah. an understanding of what you're talking about. Um, I know that your Substack is also for cricket fans. But I also know people like our pal Samson or whatever might read it and learn about cricket through that. Um, how do you, how do you manage that? And how have you found the the kind of audience response to you tackling cricket or, or, you know, I mean, people know your, your tennis and soccer stuff as well, but specifically cricket. Yeah, it's definitely like a niche base, but um, I think there is within that niche, there is a lot of passion. And so I think that uh, stands out. And I think for people like Samson who are kind of trying to figure things out, uh, I do occasionally, make some compare and contrast with uh, basketball or whatever it may be and compare certain situations. Uh, and I think that's the great thing that's sort of helped me along the way is sort of seeing the parallels between these different sports and, uh, you know, where one sport might be headed and what that might mean for another sport. Uh, and I think those things really help. Uh, and yeah, with cricket, it's a passion project, but with the way things are 
uh, really speeding up in terms of expansion in North America, uh, I think this is the right time for me to have that newsletter and uh, keep pushing towards uh, something that could be bigger. Plus, it's, uh, you know, as your hook to try to get me into it more has been the spreadsheets. So there's also <laughs> there's also that element of it if you're a, if you're a particular uh, kind of fan. So give us a, the kind of the background. I do want to get into some of those parallels between cricket and baseball, of course, as, as we tee up cricket day at, down at the ballpark tomorrow. But your cricket fandom as well. Um, I mean, I guess you, you can take us through a little bit of, you know, growing up a cricket fan and what that's been like and what it's like. You mentioned the time zone difference and stuff like that. How, how has your cricket fandom developed over the years and where is it at now in terms like compared to say basketball? Yeah, I, I think for me, uh, I'll say like cricket will always be number one. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't come to Canada until I was 16. Right. And so like when you grow up as an Indian kid, like cricket is, it's like soccer to Brazil. And so it, the passion is just super intense and you, you grew up playing for me. I, I like, I played for my school throughout and then even here, I played for my high school, shout out to Woodlands. We had quite the dynasty for a while, uh, won a few chips. So, um, and then I played club level here as well. And I think one of the things, uh, that's really exciting about seeing the expansion and seeing more opportunities with the teams that are coming up here with the leagues that are coming up here is, you know, players growing up, maybe thinking that they don't absolutely have to make it to the international level. And so it's like, Hey, if you can make it to one of these teams, like you, you can make a career for, for yourself. Right. Like that's something I had to think about. It's like, well, I'm not going to make money doing this. <laughs> There's probably going to be a lot of losing involved. <laughs> and so is this something I really want to do? So you decided on sports media and said, where there's also no money involved, there's also taken a lot of losses exactly. involved. <laughs> um, it, fr so from an international standpoint, I mean, so at, at the ballpark tomorrow, it's going to be the universe boss throwing out the first pitch, but former Team Canada captain uh, Rizwan Kima is going to be there. There are a couple other national team members. Where is Canada in terms of international development? Like, like obviously a far away from competing with the Indias and the Great Britons of the world. Um, but where is Canada at as a, as a cricket country and how has that changed over the last few years? Yeah, I think, again, the biggest thing is probably just getting more of these like domestic opportunities, uh, getting into uh, like these smaller leagues. And w what I mean by that is the way the cricket calendar has always been and the structure has always been, it's, it was always about the international competitions and, and playing for your country. And now it's kind of reversing a bit where all these franchises have come into play. And now you're seeing a lot more of these leagues uh, where you can make big money in a, a very short amount of time. Uh, and, and so you look at those opportunities and say, okay, you know, getting to be like the best 11 in your country is not what it's all about. Right. And so again, those opportunities are huge. I think that's what's playing out now within Canada um, and, uh, you know, I think when I look at players here, especially who have gotten an opportunity to play in the Caribbean Premier League, it's like, okay, now how do you graduate from that? How do you maybe, you know, the, the Canadian League, the GT20 League that starts July 20th, uh, you know, getting those opportunities there and making enough in a, of an impression to maybe get into the U.S. League, uh, the Major League uh, Cricket that will begin uh, as well July 13th. And then, you know, the ultimate dream, would be to play in the IPL. That's where the biggest money is. For some perspective, uh, it is now, uh, and has been for the last few years, uh, it is second to the NFL in terms of pay per game. Wow. That's cool. 
Um, so the way you describe that and the the way leagues are like lower level leagues are developing here and allowing guys to work out. Do you see like, do you see parallels to where soccer is in Canada and the U S right now, where, you know, MLS is now a path to actually make a living. You're not quite at that next level. You can still keep a focus on international, but Hey, there are way more domestic opportunity. I know we still have a ways to go on the women's side with that, but at least on the men's side, the, the increased domestic opportunity, is that kind of what, what cricket's trying to accomplish here with major league cricket? Um, you know, only six teams in the U S to start but it's a start yeah exactly it is a start and i think uh that is the goal and i i do think that there would be a long way to go to even get to where soccer is right now and when you look at you know the mls try, uh, being able to secure someone like Lionel messi um i think there is a ways to go in terms of that but uh i do think that they are going about it the right way now in terms of trying to uh, set up more infrastructure for the game to grow within the country as opposed to you know, doing these temporary uh, tournaments, whatever it may be, that just showcase the best talent from outside uh, North America. And so I think that's a big thing uh, that will be in play for the years to come. So who's our who's our MLC team? Who are, so there's LA, New York, San Fran, Seattle, Texas, and Washington. Uh, you know, you can research a, a little bit of it, and Kieran Pollard stands out as like, oh, I, I could get behind that guy or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, is there? Uh, do we have a lean on, on who, where your rooting interests will lie between those six? Yeah, so there isn't like a. So my team in the IPL mm-hmm. is the Royal Challengers, Bangalore. Uh, that team it, it won't be in the MLC uh, or that affiliate. But uh, my second team would be the Texas Super Kings because uh, I root for the Chennai Super Kings. Uh, MS Dhoni is like my idol. Uh, and so he won't be around. Uh, but, uh, there's a lot of players from that team that will be playing in this event. Um, and so, uh, that'll be the team for me. Nice. Uh, so you mentioned he's your idol, but someone who's up there as well that you wrote about recently, uh, Sachin Tendulkar. Um, I played his song yeah. on, on the way in here. Um, and this was your latest sub stack and kind of, you drew the parallel a little bit to, LeBron and like the level of expectation that guy faced at every step of his career and kind of met it at every step of his career. Um, is he kind of, you know, if we were to do like, Hey, an all time fave kind of, is he in that conversation for you? Is that, is that what drew you to, to write about uh, Sachin in, in particular? Yeah. I mean, there's, so the reason I wrote about him was cause he turned 50 mm-hmm. and it's so surreal to think about because he started playing for India when he was 16 Okay. And like the level of expectation that was put on him, like everyone was just like, this is the golden child. He's the next one, everything. Like again, those LeBron parallels, right? And the fact that he never put a foot wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I think that I mentioned in the story that like the biggest controversy he's he's faced is it was when like he was gifted a Ferrari and then like didn't pay the taxes. Oh. <laughs> That's literally it. Um, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and uh and and yeah the the milestones he's accomplished like he's kind of established himself as the goat uh at least on the batting side um and so uh as an indian kid you know to see a team not just him but a team of like 11 players that look like you that are out there like being you know the best if not one of the best in the world like that was huge growing up and i think that gives you a lot of belief and then for sachin to be like the best in the world going up against the Australia's, the England, South Africa's, whoever, it doesn't matter, and be the best over and over again. That was just incredible to watch. And he did it, you know, for pretty much 24 years. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good length. Um, so 
not uh, an Indian star, but Chris Gale, the yeah. universe boss, is going to throw out the first pitch. Um, he's a, a Jamaican player. How excited should uh, Blue Jays fans be to get to see him in particular? Obviously, the nickname is the nickname, and it's what they've played up in the commercials. Yeah. And um, but and and I, I have heard he's been a frequenter of Toronto around Caravana <laughs> in the past, <laughs> so maybe he's already got some roots here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how excited should people be to see the the universe boss here on Saturday? Chris Gale is one of the most entertaining players that cricket has ever had. I mean, I don't know if anyone has hit a ball further than him. Uh, it would be pretty cool to see him get him a, get in a batting cage and hmm. see how far he could hit it. Um, yeah, he's just like a huge, super powerful, and like any ball that's like in the zone is like out of the stadium. Nice. Like, and and his personality is super chill, super entertaining. Um, he's made some music. I know he's good friends with Usain Bolt. And so uh, they share that as well. And so I think, uh, yeah, he's just a guy that loves a good time and hmm. plays super chill. And like he'll wear, like he used to play and would like be in the field with like those beach sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> That's how chill he is. And nice. So, yeah. I, I think he'd be a super cool personality to have at the ballpark. Nice. So a couple other things that Jays are doing around Cricket Weekend. Uh, they have batting and bowling simulators down there. You can design your own cricket bat. Uh, they're, I mean, this is not quite as silly as the Pride Churros were, but hey, there'll be samosas uh, <laughs> at some of the concession stands as well. But the batting and bowling simulator. So like, I mean, you played and obviously cricket isn't, isn't that huge. Like how badly would you dust everyone in those batting and bowling simulators? I mean, it, it depends on how fast they, they go. Uh, I mean, if you've, because I know, you, I, I'm, I know there's simulators. Though, like, like these are like average baseball fans who are like they're not going to have that stuff cranked up, right? Yeah, no, I, I'd be okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be okay. Uh, but I mean, I think the the cool thing is like I've there's like simulators in India where you can sort of just uh, choose which like bowler in the world that you kind of want to face. Oh, cool. Uh, and so you could face like, you know, some of the best bowlers in the world and just have that. Can uh, I face the worst bowler in the world? Yes. See if you, I can you try can do that. that too. You, yeah. you probably, that can probably be uh, our starting point and then we can move up from there. But um, yeah, I think that would be a, a super cool thing to try. I think um, there's been some cool, uh, you know, uh, opportunities where cricket players have come over. Uh, and, you know, I think it was the St. Louis Cardinals that brought over uh, Harry Brook, uh, who plays for England, yeah. uh, and he tried uh, his hand at baseball, and you could see like those those parallels where you know if you have the hand eye coordination, if you have uh, a strong throwing arm, like those are the things that would you know translate pretty well. And you could see, you know, once he kind of got the hang of it, he he was getting loose pretty well. Well, I had a, I had a WWE wrestler named Veer Mahan on the show yesterday. His real yeah. name is Rinku Singh. He's the million dollar arm, right? Yeah. So he was, uh, you know, a, a national level javelinist in India and, and a cricket player. Uh, and yeah, won this competition of basically it was like who can throw the hardest and like throw it relatively close to the plate. And like he eventually was like throwing 93 and throwing breaking balls and stuff like that. Um, obviously, the... Purely pitching for velocity is, I think, you know, mechanically and athletically the thing that translates the most. But what, where else do you see parallels between the two sports? Obviously, you know, there's there's bat to ball skill, there's speed, there's things like that. Um, but what stands out to you is, hey, what what would make a baseball player good at cricket or vice versa beyond just the hey throw hard? I think having a great eye is like the biggest thing. Uh, I because I, I, I think whether you know I I used to love watching Manny Ramirez. 
And the thing that stood out was his eye. Like, his plate discipline was incredible. And that's something that would matter a lot uh, in cricket. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we, we talk about the similarities. Uh, the reason why that would be a challenge is because in cricket, you're allowed to bounce the ball. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many different trajectories at which uh, the ball can come at you. And so, like, if the ball doesn't bounce, it's got to be below the waist. If the ball bounces, then it's got to be below the head. Okay. So... Uh, that's the range you're talking about. And so being able to make those split-second decisions uh, and have it come at you pretty much anywhere, uh, I think that's where, you know, having a great eye uh, and being and having that reaction time is huge. Um, so, sorry, when it comes to bowling and the ability to bounce the ball and stuff like that, and I know the ball is structurally different with the one wider seam through the middle of the ball instead of the, the yeah. two seams around it. Um, how much of how you're trying to throw the ball is about like, obviously, you could just, you could try to throw, like, I don't know, some version of a slider where it moves a little bit and it's below the waist and doesn't bounce. But, like, the the trickiness of getting the right spin before the bounce so that it bounces unconventionally, like, is that kind of, like, the biggest pitching skill beyond velocity? Yeah, pretty much. Like, obviously, you just uh, grip the ball in different ways to make it move in different ways off uh, the pitch. Uh, and And that's the other factor as well, right? Where, like, in cricket, that 22-yard pitch can be curated to give you certain advantages. Mm. And so, for example, uh, in India, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, we're known for having great spinners. And so the pitches will cater to that. When you go to Australia, when you go to England, when you go to New Zealand, South Africa, those pitches, generally, those countries have excelled at fast bowling. And so those pitches will be fast, hard, uh, to generate so kind of like changing courts in tennis yeah. different different guys will excel in different types exactly okay. exactly and so how much then so like let's say the next the next world cup is being held at a place that you like so it, it's being held in australia if you are india and you like and you know that ahead of the world cup are you tweaking your roster are you tweaking like your player development and stuff like that to to try to like peak for that World Cup on that style of pitch? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you change you change up your 11s based on that, right? And a lot of times, you know, uh, if you're playing uh, in India, you might pick two spinners. You might even pick three. Uh, you, you go, again, to a place like Australia, you're likely picking three fast bowlers, uh, sometimes even four. And so that completely changes that dynamic. Uh, and that's kind of been a huge part of, India's growth in catching up with the likes of Australia and England who were the first to play the sport where, you know, they've kind of said like, hey, we need to get better at everything. And so they've set up the infrastructure to be like, hey, uh, now we've kind of built up our own fast bowling department and they have like a, a, a pace academy and uh, whatnot. Nice. That's uh, yeah. OK, so cricket's launching here with Major League Cricket yeah. uh, in July. Baseball is also trying to launch into the Middle East and South Asia. Um, there have been two teams announced for Baseball United, which is aiming to be the first pro baseball league uh, in the Middle East and South Asia. What do you see that obviously like us as hardcore sports people, we would love every country to play every sport, right? It's just cool. It gives you more opportunities. It gives you yeah. more stuff to be a fan fan of. Um, what do you see as maybe the challenges or, or, or opportunities for baseball trying to break into a traditionally cricket market? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is the why is obvious. There's a market of 1.5 billion people in India that you're trying to appeal to. And if you can get even a small chunk of that, that is huge uh, for the growth. And then the other thing I will say is India uh, over the last few years has been on this huge, um, you know, 
kind of get everyone a phone uh, mission, get everyone a data plan mission. And uh, India statistically has the highest mobile data consumption rate at 12 gigabytes per user per month. And approximately 25 million new smartphone users are added every quarter. And that's why a lot of these cricket games now, you can just catch it on your phone. We see, you know, Masai and Adam Silver and everyone talking about, hey, let's get these games on the phone. You know, wh whether you want to buy a fourth quarter, whatever it is, you, you need, as long as you have the access, that's how we'll grow the game. And I think that's the route that potentially baseball has to look into and say, okay, if we want to grow the game, let's get, the, get, let's get these leagues on as many phones uh, as possible. Okay, last one for you before we let you go. The Jays are also Saturday giving away a Toronto Blue Jays replica cricket jersey. Uh, first of all, the jersey in cricket or kit or what's the sweater? What yeah, jersey works. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what do you think of it? I like it. Okay. I like it. I like it enough to want it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, it'll be... A great fit for uh, Coachella 2030. Shout out to Alex. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Although the Raptors might be dominating any future Coachellas having drafted yeah. the, the gentleman <laughs> with the name uh, that they drafted there. Um, last one for you. I, I lied. So uh, this is on the spot and you mentioned Manny Ramirez. So maybe you can draw a parallel to similar Blue Jays. Off the top of your head, a Blue Jay who would make a decent cricket player. Current? Yeah, or or pass. I don't care. Um, I I think Carlos Delgado uh, would be someone I'd absolutely good eye and big power. Yeah, exactly. So is speed? I mean, is speed kind of like a specialist skill, or or like like is power overrules speed from from a batting perspective? I I just look at his eye and his ab okay. ability because the other thing with cricket that we didn't really get into this is uh the field is an oval. Yeah, and you can hit the ball anywhere, right? And so I think that ability is super crucial, right? Uh, I think if I were to pick a guy right now, you know, you lean towards uh, the guys who can spray the ball anywhere. Okay. Right? And are comfortable with so that. So a Luisa Rise who's hitting line drives and hitting <laughs> almost 400 and he's using all three fields. Yeah. It's like, oh, what if you had, what if you had like nine fields yeah, to use? Exactly. Exactly. And that's the way you kind of got to think about it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think sort of knowing your spots and that's the other thing is like, even if you get like, a strike in cricket, uh, a good pitch, you don't have to swing at it, right? Like you can take your time in this sport. Mm -hmm. and like you can just respect a good ball and then just move on to the next one. And so that's where, again, having that good eye, having that judgment to be like, okay, you know what? Respect the bowler here. I'll get mine <laughs> the next time. Uh, I think that part of it uh, is huge. Nice. Well, Vivek Jacob, thanks for taking the time out and explaining this to us. I hope you get your your Blue Jays cricket jersey. And I'm curious now. I want to get in one of these batting simulators and bowling simulators. I want to. I want to see, and then I want to get overconfident from down at the ballpark. We should do and, it together. And then I want to no. Then I want to ask you like, yeah, throw, throw me a couple, pitch a couple in here, and I'll just embarrass myself. We'll never mention it on air. Uh, v, thanks so much, man. Appreciate no, thanks it. so much for having me. Vivek Jacob of Raptors.com, of Locked On Raptors, and the Play in the V Substack. If you want to learn and read more uh, about cricket and other sports as well, um, you can check out his Play in the V uh, Twitter feed. In addition to the Substack, we're gonna take a break. We come back. Shai Davidi of Sportsnet.ca joins us. We'll tee up uh, this Oakland A's series as the Jays look to get on a little bit of a roll here. Jays Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's off yesterday, back in action tonight against the worst team in baseball. As the Oakland A's have shown us, though, as the Blue Jays have shown you at times, uh, opponent quality is not static. It's a moving target. Sometimes you run into a team when they're hot. Sometimes you run into a team when they're cold. If you had run into the Oakland A's a couple weeks back, you wouldn't have felt like they were the worst team in baseball. They've lost eight in a row. A little opportunity here, perhaps, for the Jays to build some momentum. Shai Davidi of Sportsnet.ca joins us now to talk about it. Shai, how are you, buddy? I'm all right, Blake. What's going on, man? Not much. I got to ask you first, um, the Spencer Horowitz era. It's over for now. Uh, do we want to pour one out? How, how did you feel about it and, and your favorite memories from it? I mean, I'm not sure that we're ready to cast long-term memories. I, I think the impression that I'll carry forward is just, uh, it's a good quality at bat, right? A professional at bat, a guy who has a good idea at the plate. Uh, he can make some contact. He can take some close pitches, has a good eye. I, you know, I, I liked a lot of what I saw. It's a, it's a limited sample and there's, you know, the challenge for him is that there isn't, there's some limited utility in terms of how he fits a lineup. Cause I'm not sure that he's ready to, even though he's done it in the minors a little bit, I'm not sure he's uh, he's a big league uh, big league caliber outfielders just yet. So you're looking at sort of DH first base only at bats, which maybe limits his spot. But this there's there's certainly a place for a guy who gives you that quality that bat off the bench, uh, and maybe with a little bit more runway, it becomes a little bit more than that too. Yeah, and hey, Brandon Belt's only on a one-year deal. He's back and healthy now, and he's been too good to work through, you know, where could Horwitz fit in right now scenarios. But it's a one-year deal and, uh, you know, potential future opportunities as well. Brandon Belt, though, um, has been so good that he trails only Shohei Otani in all-star votes so far. And to hear him tell it, he's the MVP. Uh, The Blue Jays have a number of players who are finalists for American League starting spots in the all-star game. Uh, Shai, of course, on, on merit, we maybe don't feel the Jays have had the best start to the season. Um, you know, sitting here half a game out of the wild card spot, fourth in the division. It's not quite what people expected. Uh, when you see something like uh, a handful of Blue Jays still being in the all-star discussion, how much of that to you is a reminder of the talent on this team? How much of you is a reminder just how hungry this fan base is for a really good baseball team to get behind? Well, I think it's every year that you see the power of the fan base in the all-star voting, right? Because the Blue Jays are always consistently in the running, uh, especially if they're, uh, if they have a ton of merit, uh, but even if they're borderline cases, then you often see them uh, getting a strong push from Blue Jays fans, Blue Jays, uh, Blue Jay players in the, you know, last man on the roster uh, contests have, have done well. I think about Delabar and Michael <laughs> Saunders immediately come to mind. So this is a, a very active, engaged, powerful, and large fan base. It, it, uh, the all-star, uh, the all-star balloting always is a reminder of that. But it, it is also a little bit of perspective. I know this season has been frustrating for many fans, and uh, for those of us following it uh, closely, it's been quizzical at times, just hard to kind of put your finger on, on a lot of things. Uh, but it hasn't been this this train wreck of a season. It just hasn't aligned with the expectations. I think perhaps there was a perception that the Blue Jays would be having the, the type of runaway season or type of runaway success that the, the Rays have had thus far. Uh, it hasn't happened, but that doesn't mean that good things haven't happened for this team. 
So um, the all-star voting, you know, it, it reopens Monday at noon for uh, for phase two, and it runs through. Uh, yeah. Oh, you can vote once per 24. I thought it said it only ran for a 24 hour period. That would be intense. Uh, no, you can. It, the starters will be revealed on June 29th. So starting Monday, you, you've got about a week uh, to get those votes in. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays have have a handful of guys in there. Like, like I mentioned, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base, Whit Merrifield at second, Matt Chapman uh, at third, Bo Bichette at shortstop and Kevin Kiermeyer in the outfield. Now, Kevin Kiermeyer has never made an all-star game before in part because he's been known as a defense first guy. And those guys don't always get all-star love, uh, but also he's, he's struggled some years to stay on the field enough to really warrant it this year, though, he has a pretty solid case um, just by way of staying in the lineup a lot. Everyone knows the defense. Also, he's hit just enough to, to be relevant there. He, he comes in at 1.6 wins above replacement right now. When you look at, the five potential Blue Jays here and, and more guys could make it in via other routes. But when you look at these five in particular, is Kiermaier a guy that, you know, you're, I know we all stay objective in the, this kind of thing, but are you rooting for it a little bit, given it would kind of be a lifetime achievement award, not for him? Yeah. You'd like to see it for him. The, a player who's consistently put his body on the line has made countless jaw dropping plays and, you know, as much as he's gotten praise as a defender, really watching him on a daily basis this year, you see more of the collective impact. You think about what it would have been like when watching him full-time when he was at the top of his uh, athletic prowess earlier in his career before, uh, you know, the attrition had started to, to whittle him down. Uh, we saw it certainly in, in short chunks, uh, games uh, between the Blue Jays and the Rays, but there's just so much dynamism in terms of how he plays and what he brings and the chaos that he can create. And there, there are all these spin-off effects of what he does that complicates the game for the opposition. That, that sort of thing doesn't always get recognized and appreciated in the all-star process, which this year is so convoluted. It's almost like reading the CBA, uh, <laughs> To, to, for, him, for him to get recognized in that way, I think would be deserving for, for a player who's done a lot of good in the game in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, yeah, you do want to stay objective, but there are times where you, there are stories that you think that are, are kind of maybe traveling to a, a logical conclusion. And Kevin Kiermaier bouncing back from a couple of years of hip issues uh, to collect his first all-star nod would certainly be uh, a, a really nice and, and, and a worthy and deserving story. Now, Whit Merrifield is also in there. He's among the league leaders uh, in batting average at 298. You know, his OPS is 738, which in the modern era is, is a little better uh, than league average. He's obviously got it done on the bases with 18 stolen bases. Uh, he's 34. There is only a small handful of Blue Jays who have made an all-star team at 34 or older. Only seven on the position player side. Uh, Joe Carter, Jose Batista, Paul Molitor, Joe Carter again. Paul Molitor again, uh, Tony Fernandez, and way back in the 70s, Ron Fairley. Um, when the Jays acquired Whit Merrifield last year, it was a little bit about solving a second base position when Kevin Biggio wasn't playing well and Santiago Espinal had come back down to earth. 
it was also, you know, viewed as maybe this isn't an everyday thing. It's some flexibility. It's some depth thing. With Merrifield running with the second base slash left field job to the degree he has, having a borderline all-star season at age 34, how big of a surprise is just how good Witt's been to this Blue Jays team? Because it, it really did seem like they picked him up as a veteran depth ad, not a guy who was going to be an everyday player at a near all-star level last year. Well, I would say that because of the skill set, the Blue Jays hoped that this might be the outcome, right? That they thought this was at least somewhat feasible. Uh, but it, was it the, you know, the most probable outcome? Uh, I, I wouldn't say so, not, not given where he was at at the time. But, you know, just in, in talking to him, he's obviously been really rejuvenated by playing on a competitive team really for the first time in his career, at least competitive to this level, uh, being able to get the opportunity. And I do also think that Whit Merrifield wants to show people that who had kind of written him off that, Hey, not so fast. There's still some game here. And you, he's also reminds me a little bit of Kiermaier in the way that you don't necessarily appreciate him if you're not watching him every day uh, because of all the different elements that he brings and the way that he plays and how hard he plays and how smart he plays. So the, like this is one of those deals where a club makes it and they're like, well, we see this as a possibility. It's not necessarily the most probable of outcomes, Mm. but we'd, we'd at least like to better not. And you know, the, the, sort of the more probable outcomes are still he's a useful player, but maybe he turns into more than that. And and that's what's happened with this Merrifield deal. It's been very timely for the Blue Jays because he's obviously fit a need and really provided a skill set that's been vitally important to this team's play so far this year. So at the other end of that and you know Bo and Matt Chapman somewhere in between both having very good seasons you know Bo with the improved defense Matt Chapman with Matt Chapman defense you can understand their cases um Vladimir Guerrero Jr seems to be there largely because of the popularity vote which is fine you're allowed to be really popular you're allowed to be a likable player um he's also a first baseman who's on pace to hit 19 home runs this year that is something that uh you know, has generally kept you out of the all-star conversation at the first base position in the, in the modern era. Um, Of course, the popularity side of it is going to uh, rule the day, but with Vlad's power, and I know it's something we've talked about a bunch, but you've had a little bit of time to to sit with it here and be around the team and analyze from a blue Jay central perspective. Um, Where are you with Vlad's power outage and, and where is the team with the confidence in Vlad getting that power back? Well, yeah, I know we've discussed this in the past, but mm-hmm. if you just look at all the predictive numbers and in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, quality of contact and the way that he hits the ball, it, everything is there for him to produce big time power numbers, right? Like the type of contact that he makes, the, the, the number of barrels that he gets, the hard hit percentage, uh, the average exit velocity, max exit velocity, all those numbers rank up there with the most elite hitters in baseball. And so the, you see, even in just talking to some people last week or earlier this week, whenever it was about it, that the, the, 
there's a feeling that it's just it's going to come and why it hasn't been there there are a ton of theories uh, obviously if you look at from a number perspective there's an interesting divide from the numbers before he missed time with the wrist issue and the numbers since he missed time with the wrist issues in early to mid-May in Pittsburgh uh, that you know, was seven homers before that just two homers since uh, the, the the most bizarre stat is that he doesn't have a home run at home. <laughs> uh, you know, there's been a, a bit of a rise in ground ball percentage over the past month. Is that him maybe trying to pull the ball a bit more aggressively to try and get some of those homers? And then he's rolling over some pitches. I, I just think there's so many pieces to this that you can point to, and and whatever you want to believe, you probably have something to believe. But I think that the ultimate thing that the Blue just keep falling back on is he's doing almost everything you want a hitter to do at an elite level. It's just not getting the results of that. So part of it is having patience and trusting that all of that stuff is going to connect. Maybe there's some stuff on swing decisions that he can change a little bit here and there. Uh, maybe t- the parts of the field that he's trying to drive the ball to at times. Uh, maybe there's a little piece to that there. But I don't think there's like one single magic bullet thing. And there may be a degree of, you know, baseball's baseball's really weird. And this could just be a portion of really weird as well. Yeah, it, c- it could be that. And honestly, in terms of potential solutions, one of the reasons I- I've brought it up a couple of times today is not just because it's a talking point, but I'm going down to the game tonight with friends instead of as media, and I would love to have it stuck in my face of like, stop talking about Vlad's home run power. Here's a home run or two at home, um, because that's the way it goes sometimes. So I'm trying to a little bit uh, do a little bit of the uh, the reverse jinx. Um, last one on the hitter side before we talk about what the, what the pitching uh, matchups look like this weekend, Shy um, John Schneider been juggling the lineup a little bit sometimes by necessity with with Bo Bichette um, needing the day with the, the thumb injury the other day Brandon Belt hitting the IL and things like that um, when it comes to John Schneider tinkering like that some of it seems to be just to, to get things going a little bit do you have a preference or, or a lean in terms of like what you think the top of this Blue Jays lineup looks best structured as I mean I generally like getting your best hitter is the most at bats possible, right? So I do like the you know, Springer one, bow two, Vlad three combination, and I can I can understand the the in, you know inserting Brandon Belton three to just get a lefty in there to break things up. Uh, I also do think that it's pretty important to have someone productive behind Vladimir Guerrero Jr. because that gives opposing pitchers something to, to think about in terms of how they're pitching Vlad and instead of just nibbling uh, in the shadows of the zone and, and hoping you get him to chase because he's trying to force the issue if there's someone productive behind them I think there's the dual impact of it maybe taking some heat off Vlad and then uh, and then making the the pitcher approach him a little bit differently too but they haven't had really the obvious option behind Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and you know, I think right now I understand completely why John Schneider is juggling the lineup the way that he is. He's really just trying to find a cluster of hitters who are productive at the same time where they can leverage the production from one another. And that's been obviously a pretty difficult thing to do over the past few weeks where 
you know, the uh, being able to string together a few hits, the ability to string together a few hits simply just hasn't existed. And so you may get nine hits in a game, but they're all spaced out and they end up doing minimal damage. So that's, that's really hard when you're trying to juggle that way. Um, but in terms of an optimal setup, I, I always just fall back to get your best hitters, the most at bats, you know, the, the top of the lineup, they, the guys who are hitting one, two, three, they may get that extra at bat in the ninth, eighth or ninth inning when you need it most. And, you know, that's why I generally like, like that. And then just kind of like let the rest figure it itself out based on who's going, and who's not. Yeah, it's one of those things where when the team's hitting, the lineup doesn't seem to matter at all. And when the team's not hitting, the lineup doesn't seem to matter at all. It's only those in-between stages where we we nitpick and it seems like one little move will uh, will make a big difference. Um, on the pitching side, Chris Bassett's going to throw tonight. He's had a little bit of trouble of late. He's had a little bit of trouble all season with the long ball. Um, that isn't what did him in against Texas. That was more of, you know, again, clustering hits and things like that and just being unable to get himself out of jams. But the Baltimore game was a was a home run issue game. The Minnesota and Tampa Bay games were home run issue games. There's also a platoon split element here going on for Chris Bassett where lefties have uh, really hit him well this year. Um, Chris Bassett's obviously a guy who he beats himself up pretty badly after these bad starts. It seems like thinks the game at a high level. Um, what do you see Chris Bassett going through right now in terms of these uh, struggles he's dealt with over the last, I don't know, not a month universally, but a couple of bad starts in this last month after being very consistent to start the year. Well, the point that he's really talked about a fair bit in the last few starts and in, you know, the brief conversation with him after the start in Texas, he certainly emphasized this is just that he doesn't feel he's locating his pitches the way that he normally can. And because he doesn't have the the huge velocity numbers, the, the margin for error is a little bit smaller for him. And if he doesn't have the opportunity to locate, then, then his stuff has to be crisp. And then his stuff hasn't been, quite as crisp as, as the way that it has been. He's obviously got the eight pitch mix and it's, it, it's certainly an interesting process in terms of keeping eight pitches going and <laughs> consistent at the same time. And he's got routines for that and ways to do it. But what you fix when, when things are off like that is, is, really challenge because what is the piece that's most important but for him a lot of things start with his ability to locate the sinker and if it's if he's able to spot his sinker up well then everything else is going to be a bit more effective so that's probably the area of focus a little bit for him right now but again he's also very game plan dependent so he may look at at a certain lineup and say well you know i'm going to need these pitches most i'm going to lock in on this and and that's how i'm going to attack it yeah, it's a tough one. And you mentioned the location and we we can look at some of his heat maps and some of the, um, you know, some of the, the locations and things like that. And you can see it. He's catching a little bit too much of the plate. A lot of the time with the stuff that isn't um, super elite, we can look at something like, you know, how often are, are you throwing the ball over the heart of the plate? The league average is about 26% and Chris Bassett's up around 31%. So um, the, the, chance to get back to the edges a little bit more and execute in that way will probably go a long way. Um, 
when you look at a team like the Oakland Athletics that's coming in here, Shy, do you concern yourself at all with the platoon split thing that Chris Bassett is dealing with? Like they could put six lefties in the lineup today, but when it's a team that doesn't have particularly good hitters, like like where do you land on the the platoon stuff if it's if they're not dangerous hitters who are hitting from the left side? Well, look, ultimately, even if you have, uh, you know, platoon issues and you think about like Jose Barrios and the way teams have at at times stacked lefties against him, if you're good, if you're hitting your spots, it doesn't matter as much. Right. And that to me is, is really the, the piece is just locate the ball. And if he's locating the ball, the, the lineup becomes far less relevant, right? Like he's had, great starts against lineups that have had, uh, you know, lefties that could do significant damage uh, in them and been fine. Like, but the, the Mets start the recently, right? Uh, he handled himself, acquitted himself very well throughout that, that outing, uh, handling guys like Lindor and Alonzo. So uh, I, I don't, I don't think that's the make or break thing. Like ultimately get your location, right? You know, have your pitches be effective. And from that point, you know, if you're sharp with, you know, your sinker and a couple of the breaking balls or a couple of the off speeds, then all of a sudden you're off to the races and it doesn't matter lefty, righty. Right. And, you know, if Ryan Noda and J.J. Blade are, are scaring you, then it's it's probably a sign that you're not executing particularly well that day. No disrespect uh, to those guys. Later in the weekend, Shy, uh, we're going to see Yusei Kikuchi as well. That ERA is now down below four. And I know the Blue Jays have helped him a little bit by, you know, limiting his exposure a third time through the order, cut him off after four and two thirds or, or five innings sometimes. He had arguably his best start as a Blue Jay last time out. How confident are the Jays in Yusei Kikuchi right now, given that, you know, there's been some up and down and he had a bit of a lull in May after the strong April, but seems to be finding the right version of Yusei Kikuchi lately. Are the Jays confident that that whatever he's been working through is sticking now? I, I think so. And look, you called it his best start. I'd argue it might also be his most important start mm-hmm. when you consider the circumstances and the way that uh, the bullpen was tired and the team really needed some sort of lift, someone to give them a pick-me-up, and, and he did that. And what's really interesting with you say just kind of watching his progress or progression over the past year and a half is that how much his, uh, his slider especially is a pitch that fluctuates for him. And there are times where it's an absolute weapon and then it maybe get a little bit too hard and then he'll lose it. It turns into a cutter and then it's not an effective offering. And then he has to work to get it back. But this year, the addition of the curveball has mitigated that a little bit, where he's got this other secondary pitch that seems to be, by and large, fairly consistent for him this season so far. And that gives him a little bit more runway. And then if, if the slider's just not there, then it's not a harbinger of disaster the way that it might have been in the years past. And so I think you couple that with the improvements in the, in the fastball command. And you certainly see a little bit more confidence. You see him pitching at times with the aggression that the blue Jays seem to believe is a really important piece for him. And uh, I do see some stickiness there. I do see some reason to think, okay, he, there's no reason why with his stuff and his repertoire, 
for him to not be capable of maintaining a four ERA for the rest of the season, if not better than that. The, he, there's certainly the upside to more, but it's not unreasonable to think that this might be relatively near where the floor is for him as well. Which would be a, a huge boost to a, a rotation that's still operating uh, with just four guys right now. Um, Shy with Oakland in town this weekend, of course it's baseball. You can't look past any opponent. You can't assume a sweep or even taking two or three against a team like this. But when you look at the schedule between now and and the all-star break, it does include Oakland. It includes a Boston team that's just okay. And it includes the White Sox and Detroit, who, along with Oakland, are, are the two worst teams uh, in the American League. There is no softer stretch of schedule that the Blue Jays will have this year. Um, do you see this team feeling some some urgency to, maybe you don't have to go on a 12-game winning streak, but to really go on a, a little bit of a, a make-up ground run here between now and the All-Star break? 100%. Look, it's a very clear window of opportunity. And you know, the way that I kind of look at a baseball schedule is that you know, by and large, roughly what number of wins you're going to need to, to get in the playoffs, right? So it's in and around. So let's let's call it in the ninety low ninety range. And so the less that you do early in the season, uh, you're essentially procrastinating, and you've got to catch up in the latter part of the season. And especially when you factor in how the Blue Jays have played against the American League East rivals, well, you're going to leave uh, wins on the table there. Well, you've got to pick them up and be that much better against the rest of the league in order to compensate. And so this is certainly a portion of the schedule where they've got the opportunity to compensate and and recover from some of that, uh, from some of those struggles against the American League East. To think that you're going to run through and it's going to be a 12 game, you you can't take that mentality into it. Uh, Every game is a major league game. Uh, there's there's small sample size randomness. There's all these weird things that can happen. So you've got to stick to your process and your approach and make sure that you're not taking a single thing for granted. But there has to be a recognition that this is an important part of the schedule where they can compensate for the, the struggles against the American League East. And it's a window of opportunity that if you don't capitalize on, well, you know, you're going to you're going to pay for that down the road. Here's how close things are, and it's too it's much too early to look at playoff odds and things like that, but those playoff odds, like at Fangraphs, they also include a projected win total update for every team. The Blue Jays, Yankees, Orioles, and Astros all right now projected to win between 87 and 87.5 games by the end of the season. So that's how tight it is. Every Literally every half game could be the difference between uh, being the top wildcard team and being out of the playoffs entirely. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there should be uh, some urgency there as well. Plus, I mean, there's always the factor too shy in July that if If you go on a little bit of run, if the front office was on the fence about anything, hey, the room makes the case of give us additions where we're finding it at the right time. I don't know how much Atkins and Shapiro subscribe to that, but it always feels a little bit like this is the right time uh, to go on a run and make a play for, you know, hey, give us a give us a little help at the deadline as well. Well, it's also what we've seen from this Blue Jay team over the past couple of years as well. You think about uh, 21 and 22, and this is around the time those teams started picking it up a little bit, right? Uh, the Blue Jays uh, in 21, they really didn't lock in until after they got home from from Buffalo and added Jose Barrios at the deadline, and then 
really took off and were one of the best teams in, in baseball over the final two months of the season. And uh, they just ran out of uh, runway there to, to catch, uh, to, to catch the, the Red Sox and the Yankees for a wild card spot. And, uh, and last year as well, that they, they cratered in that series in was it late June or early July in Seattle uh, that uh, the terrible was it, I think a one in six road trip that included uh, a stop in Oakland beforehand uh, that led to the firing of Charlie Montoyo and then uh, they really picked it up they had a good run going into the All Star break and, and took off from there so this is about the time the past couple of years that this group has has generally locked in and look I think there, there's reason to think that it's it's likely to happen again, right? The, you, you still think that the best of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is to come, that the best of George Springer is still to come. You know, Matt Chapman has still got to put up his numbers. And uh, after he looks to be turning it around after a very tough stretch in May, uh, there, Dalton Varsho should still have some more production in there based on track record. So there's lots of reasons to think that this Blue Jay team can certainly uh, turn it around the way that the clubs in the past couple of years have as well. Yeah, you'd hope so. And this is uh, a good a time as any, um, because I mean, I have to do this show and I'm going down to the game tonight and, and <laughs> lots of reasons uh, to do it now. Shai Davidi of sports Thanks for taking the time out, man. Hope you have a tremendous weekend. I hope you uh, you enjoy the game tonight. You get the type of show you're looking for. Yeah, I hope so too. It's uh, it's always a little different to go as a as a fan instead of as media. I got some friends in town for that one. Uh, that was Shai Davidi of Sportsnet.ca, our MLB insider. We're going to take a break. Um, it's not Pride Weekend at the Blue Jays game, but it is Pride Weekend here in Toronto. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk to Dale Scott, the former MLB umpire who was the first actively open active openly gay umpire in major league baseball uh he also happened to be the umpire during the bat flip game which you might remember as a pretty crazy game he was also the umpire in the fallout from the bat flip game when rugnet odor and jose batista got into it a little bit uh, we'll talk to dale scott next about being uh, an openly gay umpire in mlb about his biography and about some of those uh, some of those fun Jays games from the 2015-2016 era. Also want to pick his brain a little bit on what the future of umpiring looks like as we continue to have debates about automatic ball strike system and you know tracking in the in the ball for foul fair calls and things like that. Um, yes, Kevin Biggio's non-home run over the foul pole from the other weekend is still fresh in my mind, if you were wondering. Dale Scott joins Jays Talk Plus next on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Hope you have a nice weekend ahead fun one a safe one it's pride weekend in toronto uh not at the blue jays game that was a couple weeks ago but in general it is so i hope you have a good time enjoying that if you're participating as well joining us now is dale scott he's the former mlb umpire he was the first active openly gay umpire in major league baseball he is a national gay and lesbian sports hall of famer and he is the author of the umpire is out calling the game and living my true self dale scott how are you man thanks for joining us this morning 
Blake, good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the invite. No, it's it's great to have you. Um, so I, I want to start with with the book, and I know it's been out for a little bit now, but for anyone who doesn't know, um, The Umpire is Out is kind of your story of being the, the first openly gay umpire in Major League Baseball. Curious what the process was like for you writing that book with Rob Nyer. Um, I, I've worked with an athlete before doing that, and I was in the, the Rob Nyer role. Um, what was the, the process like for you kind of going back through everything and reliving and reexamining those certain parts of your life? Well, in a way, it was uh, you know uh, uh, surreal. I mean, uh, every chapter that I wrote about uh, took me back to that time, you know, diving right back into it. All the the good times and a few of the not so good times, like our uh, union uh, implosion in '99. Uh, when I wrote that chapter, I was uh, depressed again for a couple of days because mm. it was uh, you know that wasn't a, a highlight of my life. But you know, uh, Rob and I worked well. We started this in October of 2020. Uh, of course, during the pandemic. So uh, Rob does live here in Portland like I do. So, uh, But we would you know, do some phone interviews uh, and stuff. I, I wrote uh, most of the uh, chapters uh, that were uh, personal stuff. The baseball stuff, we, uh, we combined a little bit. It was a process. That obviously, I'd never done it before, but it was a process, a process that I enjoyed. And uh, I could certainly see, uh, you know, six months later when we were uh, handing the manuscript in in, in, in May of 21 that uh, – uh, my writing had improved a little bit from October to, to May. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a good thing to to experience and, and a good thing for the book for sure. Um, so that book came out in twenty in twenty twenty two. You came out in, in twenty fourteen, but maybe I not maybe I'm sure that the book itself and the media rounds you've done since then, um, you know, maybe it wasn't on some people's radar before. What has the reaction been uh, to the book uh, specifically uh, around your friends and people you know in baseball circles? Well, I, I got to say, uh, just like uh, in 2014 when I came out publicly, uh, the feedback that I've been getting for the book has been extremely positive. Um, the the reviews that have been uh, coming have been very good. I I you know I didn't know what to expect, quite frankly, and 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 as far as that goes, I I had really no plans to write a book uh, before I retired and after I retired. I you know I had a lot of friends and people just say you you got to write a book, you got to write a book. You have so many stories and uh, so many experiences in baseball. But also, uh, Rob had kind of, you know, pointed me or pushed me into writing it when he said, you also have an experience that nobody else has. And that was my journey, uh, you know, uh, being gay in baseball, living a, a double life, uh, actively trying to make sure baseball didn't find out about my sexuality, um, and then going full circle and actually publicly coming out as the first active official to do that. So, um, it, it, you know, plus it's got, for the baseball fan, just if you like baseball <laughs> stories, um, I've got a ton of them, uh, minor leagues, big leagues, the Dominican. Um, it's hard not to have stories when you work uh, 37 years in professional baseball. Oh, and I've got some questions about some of those stories, including your <laughs> 91st and final playoff game. We'll get to that in right. just a minute. That was the bat flip game, of course. Um, so you've also, you know, since the book came out and since you, you came out publicly, um, you've gotten involved around some of Major League Baseball's pride events, including the Tampa Bay Rays one uh, very recently that Included, you know, a book signing. You you were interviewed on the broadcast. Um, a, a team like the Rays has kind of been at the forefront of making sure everyone feels welcome at the ballpark. Um, when you look around baseball at how some teams have handled this on the positive side, um, how nice is that for you to see? And you know how 
I guess the, not not to spin it as a negative as well, but there are the Texas Rangers out there who have declined to do it. There is the Rob Manfred out there who has, you know, now publicly kind of said the quiet part loud of nudging teams toward not doing it or at least not in, in at least not incorporating it into things like jerseys or, or warm-up shirts or hats or things like that. Um, the way Major League Baseball and, and the different teams have handled these pride events, um, how do you feel about it and where do you feel that there's you know some room to still make some more progress? Well, for the most part, you know, baseball has been ahead of the of the pack, so to speak, of, of, of major professional leagues. Uh, I mean, when they hired Billy Bean back in uh, mm-hmm. 2014, uh, which was a great hire, and Billy has worked uh, – tirelessly on on these issues uh in professional baseball with the major and minor leagues um and 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 at, at just a full disclosure he also uh wrote the uh, foreword in my book hmm. but um you know yes uh i think things have gone very well it, with pride events in baseball there have been some hiccups last year in tampa when a few players decided uh to go rogue and and, and not wear uh, the the uh, emblem or whatever it was uh, on their uniforms and that uh, uh, you know got a lot of press. But um, at that, that very same day, I happened to be in San Francisco. They were playing the Dodgers. It was their Pride Day and, and for the Giants. And both teams, including the umpires, were wearing uh, special Pride hats and 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 the two teams' uh, special Pride uniforms. So uh, that kind of unfortunately got overshadowed a little bit because of of the mutiny in uh, in, in Tampa. Look. Um, Sometimes in in this uh, uh, quest of equality and 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 and, and uh, you know being seen and being proud and, and and you know baseball letting everybody know that that everybody's welcome. Sometimes it's uh, you know two steps forward and then a step back, and uh, you know that shouldn't detour what we're trying to do as far as. Uh, uh, you know, again, show that baseball is for everybody and just continue to, to move forward and educate. And, and, and uh, you know, hopefully uh, these uh, little bl- uh, blips, so to speak, will be uh, few and far between. So for anyone who maybe doesn't understand the, the weight of having events like this for uh, a queer baseball fan or, or someone around the sport, prior to you coming out publicly in 2014, how much would events like this have meant to you as a part of the baseball fabric? Well, it means a lot. You know, uh, I get the cynical, uh, uh, you know, people will write online or, you know, why don't we have a straight night? Well, <laughs> straight night is every every night, okay? So, uh, and so, um, you know, uh, it, it, that's a little, uh, a little cynical as far as that goes. But, you know, I, I, it, as it turned out, one year or the year that I came out, I came out in 14, but the first season that I was uh, out on the field, 20. 15. I had I happened to be have the behind the plate uh, be working behind the plate in Washington D.C. when they had their Pride Night, and and it it, it felt kind of special, you know, out there. I mean, obviously I'm doing my job, and, and that's that's the most important thing. But it was kind of a uh, it was kind of cool. It was a MLB Network uh, showcase game. Bob Costas, uh, uh, you know, mentioned you know I was behind the plate that I had just come out earlier, uh, you know, a few, a few months earlier, and and uh, uh, you know it meant something. But I tell you what, like the the People I've met um, when I've done book signings. Uh, I had a, a book signing last July in Toronto, which uh, went really well. Uh, and when I've um, uh, d- uh, done these uh, MLB Pride Nights, I did eight of them last year. I did the one in tr- uh, Tampa this year. I've met so many people that um, it's so humbling. You know, my my journey, my story affected them in such a positive way. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I didn't know, again, what to anticipate when I came out in 2014. I didn't know what to anticipate when the book came out. 
Um, but but it, overall, it's just been a very positive message uh, that I've gotten from people, and and uh, it's very humbling that uh, you know telling my story has affected people in such a positive way. You know, Billy Bean also said, Dale, you are hearing from the people that took the time to to message you. There's a ton of people. It's like an iceberg. There's a ton of people you'll never see and never meet, but uh, your message and your journey has helped them also. And so it's uh, it's very humbling. Well, that's very great to hear, Dale. Um, and, and no no seamless uh, segue here into the, you know, let's talk about some umpiring stuff, you know, because I think in 2015, um, you know, you get into certain situations. No one's really thinking of that. And you're, they're thinking, man, what the heck is this guy calling? He called time. What is going on? The, so the right, backflip game, right. that crazy seventh inning, I, I know you've talked to, to us at Sportsnet about it before, but game five of the 2015 ALDS, uh, Blue Jays and Rangers, and there is that weird thing where Russell Martin throws the ball off Shinsuju's bat, and everything kind of spirals from there. Um, I guess, what do you remember most from that game, and how relieved were you that the bat flip home run happened? Because you know, had that game ended up in favor of Texas, that particular play maybe gets remembered a lot more, or there's a little more heat on it. Well, if 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 the uh, home run hadn't happened, I. Uh probably uh, wouldn't ever have come to Canada ever again. So I would be allowed. Uh, uh, you know, um, I did make a mistake when it first happened. I, I you know, let's, uh, let's be honest. How many times have you seen a, a catcher when throwing the ball back to the pitcher, throw it off a, a hitter who's doing nothing wrong, just standing there uh, off his bat. Now, I mean, I've seen a million throws from a catcher to the pitcher. Uh, that's the first time I've ever seen that. Yes, I, I did call time, but after, right after I did, as my mind was racing, um, I had confused uh, a, a different rule we had in Milwaukee with what had happened. That ball should have stayed alive. And so what it came down to was this. Uh, the re- the uh, deflection of the ball was uh, in such a place that there was no Blue Jay even near it. And uh, the runner, Odor, uh, uh, broke for the plate immediately when the ball uh, became loose. And in my judgment, even though I had called time, the, you know, we say as umpires, common sense and fair play. Well, it would not have been fair because of my mistake when they had zero chance of, of, of throwing this guy out uh, to, to not score that run. And that's exactly what I did. So, uh, it, it, you know, in other words, like I got the play right, but I looked really bad doing <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and uh, that uh, kind of set off a whole chain of events. I, I remember John Gibbons was so funny. He protested the game. And, he, you know, I said, well, John, you, you know, what are you protesting? I got to know what you're protesting. He goes, I protest all of it. I protest, I protest the whole thing. <laughs> I said, John, you can't, you can't just protest everything. You know, I've linked a protest. But, uh, um, uh, you know, we, we did get it right uh, eventually. Uh, well, the same inning that took, you know, forever. Uh, uh, Batista, they tied it up, and then Batista put him ahead for good uh, with that home run, that bat flip. I, I just remember when he hit that. You know, sometimes when a ball's hit, um, you're not sure if it's going to go out, or you think it will and it doesn't. You think it won't and it does. That one was, I was pretty, <laughs> pretty sure that thing was <laughs> going to land in, uh, in uh, you know, Alberta somewhere. But uh, uh, I, I remember the bat flip and thinking out of the corner of my eye, and I saw him do that. I thought, well, this. This could be interesting. <laughs> Set off some problems, and I, the other thing I remember is just how unbelievably loud it was when he hit that baseball. I mean, it was—I felt like I was in a jet engine or something. It was unbelievable. It, uh, it, uh, you know, I'll never forget it. And that, as you had said earlier, that was my last uh, postseason game. 
And then the next season, you get the game where it all boiled over to a head and Rugnador throws the punch and everything. I guess I only have a minute left with you here, but are you surprised that it took until the third game of that series for everything to to kind of blow up in 2016 when those teams met again? Well, you know, it's funny because when we got our schedule uh, before the season started, I told my crew, uh, you know, strap it on, boys, in May. We got Toronto uh, coming to Texas. Now, they played in Toronto uh, three games about two or three weeks earlier, and nothing happened. So we knew, and this was the last time they were going to meet, uh, That you know, in 2016 was that those three games in May in, in Texas. And after the first two games and nothing happened, uh, we were all looking around going, you know, uh, I mean, this is, if, if something's going to happen, it's got to happen today. And we were certainly anticipating something, and it sure did. It was, I think, the eighth inning. They waited all the way to the eighth uh, before uh, everything broke loose. But, um, uh, you know, we were prepared for it. But that I've seen a lot of, quote-unquote, you know, brawls. Uh, there's only two that I've seen some really vicious punches thrown. One was in, in, in 94 in Milwaukee with, with the A's. But uh, the other one was, was that game in Arlington. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, hey, it's it was fun. It was probably nonsense and didn't need to happen, but uh, entertainment is entertainment. Uh, Dale Scott, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning. Keep up all the uh, all the great and important work. Looking forward to talking to you again. Yeah, just uh, real quick, US, uh, udspride.com is a, is a uh, collection of uh, pride uh, uh, stuff that I have out, and with all the proceeds going to uh, Umpscare, which is uh, my favorite charity in and so uh, I just wanted to throw that out there because it's a cheap uh, little plug that I just gave you, Blake. <laughs> yes, the Dale Scott collection, uh, udspride.com, and the book is called The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self. Uh, Dale Scott, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Blake. Dale Scott, former MLB umpire. Again, uh, The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self is his biography about being the first openly gay umpire in Major League Baseball. Um, and it's uds.com. Uh, no, I'm drawing, drawing, sorry. Uh, I'm reading udspride.com rather uh, for the Dale Scott collection of gear. Uh, it is Jay's athletics this weekend. Let's take you through the pitching matchups, uh, familiarize you with a couple of lesser known uh, Oakland athletics pitchers. It's going to be Chris Bassett against James Caprillion tonight. Uh, you know the deal with Chris Bassett, some platoon issues, a little bit of long ball issues of late. Uh, Caprillion is kind of having a, a rough go himself. He was one of the the good finds from the Oakland A's kind of, of rebuild these last couple of years, even though he is, you know, he's 29 now, a former first round pick of the Yankees who, who took a long time uh, to get to the major leagues, but had an ERA just slightly North of four as a, as a near full-time starter each of the last two years, he comes in with a 638 ERA right now, uh, struggling with heavy fly ball profile and walking more guys than he probably should, given his inability to miss bats. Tomorrow is Jose Brios against Hulk Hogan Harris. Um, you know him as, uh, you know, all you Hulkamaniacs, surely familiar with him. Uh, he's been in the A's system a while after being a, a third-round pick back in 2018. He's only made two starts this year, so uh, hard to make heads or tails of the numbers. He was starting at AAA and had been solid, but the walk rate was sky high in the minors, as is the fly ball rate. So some of the same issues that have plagued Caprillion. If you are looking at what the Blue Jays' strategy could or should be this weekend, um, you know, you've got some guys who walk more batters than they should, and you've got some fly ball-prone guys. 
that should uh, tell you a lot. Luis Medina, who's going to pitch Sunday, uh, doesn't have those issues to quite the same degree. He still skews fly ball and probably walks more guys than, than maybe you'd like. He comes in with a 7.01 ERA. Uh, this is an Oakland Athletics team that's lost a bunch of games in a row that's lost more than 75% of their games overall. It's a good opportunity for the Blue Jays' bats to get going and keep going and maybe to build some momentum uh, and make up some ground in that wild card picture. Blair and Barker will have you five to seven to continue to tee up that game. They'll also have Jay's talk for you post game. The Jeff Merrick show is next. And then uh scheduling note, the Raptor show with William Liu is in the two to three slot today because yesterday was the NBA draft. They'll break down everything you need to know about Grady Dick and, and where the Raptors stand heading into free agency. You can also check out sportsnet.ca in a little bit here. Uh, I have, you know, a little cap update and, what the what the roster sheet looks like uh, ahead of free agency going up at sportsnet.ca momentarily. Uh, I'm off Monday. Jay's Talk Plus will be here with Ben Shulman and Sho Ali, but I will talk to you Tuesday on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360.